to the Every Word Podcast. All right, everybody. Well, welcome back to the podcast this week. We're so glad to have you with us. Um, We are going to jump right into this episode this week, and we are going to be covering Genesis chapter 38. So uh, Genesis 38, it's a little bit different uh, from what we have kind of been uh, familiar with in Genesis. Genesis is more of a narrative-based, almost like a storybook. I mean, Um, naturally, you know, all the accounts in there are true, but the way we read it, um, or the way we have read it for the most part thus far has kind of been pretty chronological. Um, but this chapter that we're about to go into talking about Judah and Tamar, it kind of uh, feels a little bit out of place, essentially because we uh, just kind of covered uh, Joseph and what happened to him in our, our last chapter. Um, but there's some good stuff in here, um, and it's in here in this position for a reason. I think we'll get into some of that a little bit later, but just kind of a heads up. And also, one other real quick disclaimer. Um, this chapter is, um, you know, it's Bible, but it also contains uh, some things and some uh, grammar, some some verbs that um, may not be the best for our younger listeners to be listening to without any kind of context. So listener discretion, be advised. Um so just, you know, if you have any younger younger listeners, um, just, if you will, kind of keep an eye on them as we go through this one. Of course, we're going to do our best to explain everything the way it's meant to be interpreted, but uh, just kind of a heads up. So without any further ado, I am going to hand it over to my buddy Ethan, and he will go ahead, and we're actually going to read this chapter front to back, and then we are going to start digging into it as it's kind of a one big long story. So that being said, I'm turning it over to you, brother Ethan. All right. Thanks, AJ. All right, so let's go ahead and just jump right in. Um, Genesis chapter 38, verse 1 in the New Living Translation. Verse 1. About this time, Judah left home and moved to Adullam, where he stayed with a man named Hira. There he saw a Canaanite woman, the daughter of Shua, and he married her. When he slept with her, she became pregnant and gave birth to a son, and he named the boy Ur. Then she became pregnant again and gave birth to another son, and she named him Onan. And when she gave birth to a third son, she named him Shelah. And at the time of Shelah's birth, they were living at Kezib. In the course of time, Judah arranged for his firstborn son, Ur, to marry a young woman named Tamar. But Ur was a wicked man in the Lord's sight, so the Lord took his life. Then Judah said to Ur's brother, Onan, go and marry Tamar, as our law requires of the brother of a man who has died. You must produce an heir for your brother. But Onan was not willing to have a child who would not be his own heir. So whenever he had intercourse with his brother's wife, he spilled the semen on the ground. This prevented her from having a child who would belong to his brother. But the Lord considered it evil for Onan to deny a child to his dead brother. So the Lord took Onan's life too. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Go back to your parents' home and remain a widow until my son Shelah is old enough to marry you. But Judah didn't really intend to do this because he was afraid Shelah would also die like his two brothers. So Tamar went back to live in her father's home. Some years later, Judah's wife died. After the time of mourning was over, Judah and his friend Hira, the Adulamite, went up to Timnas. Timnah to supervise the shearing of his sheep. Someone told Tamar, look, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. Tamar was aware that Shelah had grown up, but no arrangements had been made for her to come and marry him. 
So she changed out of her widow's clothing and covered herself with a veil to disguise herself. Then she sat beside the road at the entrance to the village of Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. Judah noticed her and thought she was a prostitute since she had, a, she had covered her face. So he stopped and propositioned her. Let me have sex with you, he said, not realizing that she was his own daughter-in-law. How much will you pay me? Pay to have sex with me, Tamar asked. I'll send you a young goat for my flock, Judah promised. But what kind? But what will you give me to guarantee that you will send the goat, she asked. What kind of guarantee do you want, he replied. She answered, leave me your identification seal and its cord and the walking stick you are carrying. So Judah gave them to her. Then he had intercourse with her and she became pregnant. Afterward, she went back home, took off her veil and put on her widow's clothing as usual. Later, Judah asked his friend Hira the Adulamite to take the young goat to the woman and to pick up the things he had given her as his guarantee. But Hira couldn't find her. So he asked the men who lived there, Where can I find the shrine prostitute who is sitting beside the road at the entrance to Anaim? We've never had a shrine prostitute here, they replied. So Hira returned to Judah and told him, I couldn't find her anywhere, and the men of the village claim they've never had a shrine prostitute there. Then let her keep the things I gave her, Judah said. I sent the young goat as we agreed, but you couldn't find her. We'd be the laughingstock of the village if we went back again to look for her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has acted like a prostitute, and now, because of this, she's pregnant. Bring her out and let her be burned, Judah demanded. But as they were taking her out to kill her, she sent this message to her father-in-law. The man who owns these things made me pregnant. Look closely. Whose seal and cord and walking stick are these? Judah recognized them immediately and said, She is more righteous than I am because I didn't arrange for her to marry my son Shelah. And Judah never slept with Tamar again. When the time came for Tamar to give birth, it was discovered that she was carrying twins. While she was in labor, one of the babies reached out his hand. The midwife grabbed it and tied a scarlet string around the child's wrist, announcing, This one came out first. But then he pulled back his hand and out came his brother. What? the midwife exclaimed. How did you break out first? So his name was Perez. Then the baby with the scarlet string on his wrist was born, and he was named Zara. All right, AJ, go ahead. All right. <clears throat> well, thank you, Brother Ethan. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and get started. Like I said, when I open the, uh, the episode this time around, all my notes for the entire chapter, I'm going to go ahead and just try to plow through uh, right now. And then we'll go ahead and turn it over to Brother Ethan for his thoughts. But um, So to get started, when you first read this chapter, uh, I kind of said this a little bit earlier. It's a little bit off-putting because of the fact that we just discussed Joseph and him being sold into slavery in the last chapter. Now all of a sudden we're taking a detour to cover Judah and his family. It almost sounds almost like a weird commercial break of sorts. It's like... And, you know, and next week, find out what's going to happen with Joseph and his family. But in the meantime, check out this episode on Judah and Tamar. Um, It kind of feels a little bit out of place initially. But um, I think it's important to understand uh, what comes behind this chapter in uh, Genesis 39. So the story about Judah, this story about Judah and his family issues are kind of juxtaposed against the integrity of Joseph that we'll read about uh, when he falls, you know, when he is, he, they attempt to, to tempt him uh, in, in uh, Genesis 39, which we will read about uh, hopefully next time around. 
Um, but when we start this chapter and we kind of get this off the ground, we see that Judah, he's moved away from his family and he's now in this Canaanite territory. He meets and he marries this Canaanite woman, um, something that we know was not advised and really not approved by the Israel for the Israelite people to do. And he has three sons. He has Er, Onan, and Shelah. And I've probably mispronounced those, but um, forgive my southern accent. <clears throat> but so as Judah's eldest, Er, is at the age of marriage, uh, Judah arranges for him to marry this local Canaanite woman named Tamar. But due to Er's wickedness, and that's really all we're ever told, it just says that he was a wicked man in the Lord's sight. We don't exactly know what that consisted of. But whatever it was, God did not find it very pleasing, and God thus chose to strike him down before he and Tamar uh, bared a child. Um, then we see in verse 8 that Judah instructs his middle son Onan to take Tamar to produce an heir on behalf of his dead brother. And now this is one of those times when you read this chapter initially, especially from a modern 21st century perspective, this doesn't really make a lot of sense. And our modern day culture is kind of shocked and we struggle to understand what's going on here. You know, naturally today's society, in today's society, this is not the case. Um, if this were to happen, if, if two people were uh, married and they did not, and, and the husband were to pass away and she becomes a widow, but they never had a son, um, naturally this is not going to happen. Um, this is not the culture of this day, but of this day and time, uh, this was the thing to do. Um, and this law or procedure is what's known as a leveret, I believe I'm pronouncing that correctly, leverite or leverate marriage. And it was the accepted custom of the time. And in short, uh, to kind of give you an exam or to kind of give you a breakdown of what this is, this custom or law stated that a husband should a husband die before birthing a male heir to his name, his widow would then almost like property revert back to the responsibility of his father or her father-in-law. And his father's responsibility was to then ensure that this widow produced an heir, a uh, male heir on behalf of his deceased son. Uh, the normal custom was to do as Judah had initially did, which was to give her to the next son they had, which in this case was Onam. So why did this law or custom even exist? You know, what's what's the point? Why, why, why aren't we hung up on this male heir business? Um, again, remember the customs of the day compared to the customs of at least the United States of America. Unmarried or uh, widowed women had very little to no power in society during this time. And even though Tamar was betrothed to Er when he died and they did not have a male heir, male heir, heirs, <laughs> possessions would then be forfeit uh, as society would not allow her as a widow to retain those things like we would uh, in today's society. But in an event such as this, it was typically the next brother's responsibility to redeem the land and the possessions of his dead brother and then sire an heir through his widow that could one day inherit the dead man's possessions. <clears throat> and once she had a male heir as a widow uh, with a son, she was then, by the same leveret uh, marriage law, she was free by law to live in a house uh, with her son in her father's household. Um, and then kind of on down the road, what would typically happen would be that male son, that male heir would then grow up to essentially take care of his widowed mother. Um, it's also important to note here that, uh, had both her husband and father-in-law. So if, if both Judah and heir had both died, this would have like broken the law or this would have, have opened it up to where she would have simply just became a widow and she would have been free to go and do as she pleased. Um, but because 
Judah still lived, it's like she kind of reverted back to him as her father-in-law. <clears throat> this law or custom, uh, we will later see way, way down the road when we ever get there, um, will be codified formally in Deuteronomy chapter 25. Right now, it's not really a formal in the books kind of thing, at least not from a biblical perspective. Um, but we do see this practice being upheld, obviously. So moving on to Onan, Judah's second son that he gave uh, Tamar to, we see that he wasn't on board, obviously, with producing a child that wasn't his. But, however, this did not stop him from pleasuring himself with Tamar. So in other words, he used Tamar for pleasure and self-satisfaction, but was unwilling to commit and take on the burden that he had originally been tasked with. So when I read this and I was beginning to think on it because I was like, you know, all right, what's, what's the underlying, you know, there's, there's several things, you know, that you could kind of uh, read into with this particular passage of scripture. One area that my mind kind of went into that I didn't expect, but uh, when I began to think about it, it really just, it was an eye opener for me. My mind immediately went to thinking about uh, how we are with church sometimes you know, maybe I like the fact that my church gives me free fancy coffee on in Sunday morning Sunday school. Maybe I like that they let me shoot hoops in the gym. Maybe I like that they have some really great musicians and singers that are just like awesome. And they, man, that that guy, that you know, brother Clyde T, man, he can tear up that piano. Um, <laughs> yeah, sure can. <laughs> that's right. Shout out to brother Clyde T. Um, but and while there's nothing wrong with those things, uh, those are all wonderful things, and it's great that churches have those things. Uh, those thing, those are things that really more than anything can sometimes pleasure us more in the flesh uh, than make a spiritual impact on us. Um, but you know, church isn't designed for you and I to just show up, get what I want or what we want out of it, as far as. Uh, the the worldly pleasures or the the fleshly pleasures and walk away. Being a part of a church requires input from everyone, and that's myself and yourself included. Um, and that doesn't mean that you know each and every one of us are going to have to stand behind the pulpit and give a you know hellfire and brimstone uh, message. You know, uh, we all have different ways that we input or we we invest in the church. If I'm attending my church just for the pleasures or just for what I want to get out of it, just whatever makes me feel good, but I'm not finding a way to get involved with soul saving and helping that church to grow both in number and in spirit, then really I'm no better than Onan. I've used the church to satisfy myself, but when the time comes to make a commitment and to give myself to a cause that's not my own, I back out or I choose not to. But why would I back out? Why why do we why would we want to back out from committing to church? Um, maybe it's fear, or maybe it's because I've let my heart grow calloused to conviction, and my drive to see souls saved has kind of faded away. And now all I want out of church is just the pleasures, the 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 niceties, the being able to kind of go and hang out with my church buddies and all that other stuff. And again, I'm not condemning any of this. But just as much as the church gives to us, we must and we need to be able to invest back and give back into the church for the edification of his kingdom. Um, but, you know, I have to be careful not to allow the church to just, you know, pleasure me. Um, but then yet I don't turn the tables and I don't work on the preservation and the propagation of the church. So Onan fulfilling his duties as he should have would have meant that he 
<clears throat> would have helped preserve his brother's family, his brother's name, and his brother's possessions. So when I got to think about it, you know, what's another term for, for to preserve? It's to save. Onan, he wouldn't have been the, the savior of his brother's family. He wouldn't have, you know, had that title of, oh, Onan, the savior, the mighty savior. Um, rather, God would have taken his fulfillment of the law and used it to give birth or to create one that would have done the saving of his brother's family. So instead, Onan knew that the heir he would have produced not only would not have been his to, you know, to his child, his heir, but since uh, his eldest brother, Ur, uh, was the firstborn, the child he produced with Tamar would have went on to inherit more than Onan ever would have because of being the firstborn. And thus Onan refused to fulfill his responsibility excuse me, responsibility to his dead brother. God could have or would have used Onan's efforts to save his brother's family. And that's what God wants from us. Yes, he wants the church to bless us and to nurture us. But at the same time, he wants us to give our part to the church to make our investment so that others can be saved. Not by our direct actions, but what we invest, what we pour into the church, God can then take that and give birth to things, you know, uh, give birth to new life in the church and new souls and, and all that other stuff. So, again, it's, you know, the way church is, we, we must be willing to invest and commit not only just be the ones coming in and receiving everything that they're giving out. So uh, moving on from there, after we see Onan fail to do as the custom had commanded, God is not pleased, obviously, and thus he strikes down Onan. So now Judah is only left with one son, uh, Shelah. <clears throat> Fearing for Shelah's life, uh, Judah reverts Tamar back to her parents' house and promises her that he will marry her to Sheila when he becomes of age. We don't exactly see how old Sheila is at this point, but we assume he must be a little bit too young. However, but we do know that that was not Judah's true intentions in the long run. But we read on from here and we see that Judah's wife dies. And sometimes later after the grieving period, Judah is heading uh, into Timah to supervise the shearing of his sheep. So in, when I was doing my research, I did come across this that said that sheep shearing day was the equivalent of payday for a lot of shepherds. Um, you know, if you were raising sheep, you know, that was that was there was a good chunk of the money right there that you wanted to see coming in was when you could shear off that that wool and get it sold. So this is when they would get paid for the wool and they finally see kind of some of the fruits for their labor. Um, speaking of sheep, if you haven't listened to Brother Ethan's episode on the heart of the shepherd that came out a couple weeks ago, definitely go do that. It's got some really funny parts in it. I'm talking about how dumb sheep are. I, I literally laughed as I heard the episode, but it also has some really great stuff in there. Um, talking about, you know, our savior and, uh, his heart for his, for his sheep. So definitely go check that one out if you haven't already, but jumping back to what I was saying, um, because this often happened away from their homes, you know, the selling of the, the shearing of the sheep and, and selling of the wool, a lot of times I was away from their camps, away from their homes. Um, you couple that with just the natural joy that one receives when getting paid. I mean, I think we can all say payday is always a good day, right? Um, this was often a time of merriment and celebration by the men, and thus prostitution was also often available nearby to, you know, help the men celebrate, if you will. Um, so we see that Tamar realizes that Judah has lied to her and is unwilling to fulfill the duties to her by letting her marry Sheila. So therefore, we see Tamar take matters into her own hands. She sheds her widow's clothing and positions herself along the way so that Judah would see her, but she covers her face with a veil so as to not reveal her identity. 
But why would Tamar do this? So remember what I said earlier. Tamar in this is now in this state of kind of this eternal limbo because of this leverite, leverite uh, marriage um, uh, law, if you will. So uh, he, she is tied to Judah's family due to Ur, but due to not having a male heir, she still really has no rights or power or ability to provide for herself. So she's kind of a between a rock and a hard place. So until Judah makes a move and gives her the ability to, to sire this heir, um, she's kind of stuck in this limbo where she doesn't have the ability to produce an heir, but she also doesn't have the freedom to go and marry somebody else. Um, you know, she's, uh, she sets herself out there, though, as a prostitute, not to have relations with the first person to come along, but she's looking for one person and one person only. She's looking for Judah. And she sets the stage for Judah to fulfill his obligation to her and to Er, whether he wants to or not. Um, so when Judah comes across her, he doesn't initially recognize her due to the veil. So Upon Judah's proposition to her, Tamar is wise and requests some form of promissory gift to ensure that Judah's payment of a young goat would be fulfilled. Was she really concerned genuinely about the goat? No. But she had plans for uh, what she did receive, the the items, the promissory gifts. So the Bible says that she was given, I think in the King in the uh, New Living Translation, it's an identification seal. I believe that's how they say it, an identification seal a cord and a walking stick. So I tried to do a little bit of digging, which depending on what version you read, uh, the identification seal could have been a seal or it could have been like a signet ring. It was essentially something that um, was very unique to that individual person. It's what we would consider. It it would have the same power as a social security number or a signature today. Um, It's something extremely unique to that person. It was a means by which, um, you know, uh, you could tie this thing directly back to this certain person. Um, it was something that identified Judah as Judah. Um, you know, it could have been a cylinder with a string through it that could have been worn as a necklace, or like I said, it could have been a signet ring. And we, we actually do see more about signet rings later in the old Testament. Uh, the cord portion that could have either been a string on which the seal or the ring was hung around the neck, like a necklace or, there are some documented cases where it could have been like some cords or lace tassels that would have been on Judah's robes, and these would have had various colors which would have denoted Judah's power and status and again provided another means of identification back to Judah. And the last item was a walking stick. Some scholars think that it may have been custom built with a family crest or symbol on the head, kind of like you've seen some uh, some fancy walking sticks with maybe like a duck head or something on the top. Um, this would have been on the head of the cane, potentially. There could have been some kind of a family crest or symbol that would have been, again, a unique identifier back to Judah. So she makes it a point to get three different elements um, that would tie directly back to Judah. And we'll see why, and we've read why, but we'll kind of discuss that here in just a little bit. So after Judah and Tamar, they sleep together and Tamar becomes pregnant, we see that she reverts back immediately to who she was, a little woman. And it's further evidence that Tamar, she was not a prostitute in the way that we think. You know, even though she set herself out amongst them kind of in the way like they would have been, um, she used the appearance of one to have Judah fulfill his duty to her. 
So Judy, Judy, <laughs> Judah's lack of ability to locate her and to give her the goat and to get his item back further illustrates that Tamar only did what she did to fulfill a custom so that she could basically save her own life. You know, the fact that Judah couldn't find her means that obviously she wasn't out there trying to keep up this, you know, uh, persona or trying trying to legitimately become a prostitute. She only did that uh, to meet up and link up with Judah her, herself. So. Um, later when Judah is informed that Tamar is pregnant, Judah issues this very harsh decree that she is to be burned. So in my research, this is a very harsh, there's a lot of, a lot of commentary that said this is a very harsh punishment, even for being a prostitute. Um, but it is possible that Judah gave this harsh command so that he could finally be free of his obligation to Tamar without having to risk his last son's life. Because you know, Judah had this on his mind all this time, uh, when he, I'm sure has probably thought about it nearly every day. The fact that, you know, Tamar is kind of in this limbo state um, and he has yet to fulfill this. But he at the same time, he doesn't want to risk his last son's life uh, by trying to fulfill this law. So as Tamar is being hauled out to be burned uh, with her life, literally hanging in the balance, she lays all her cards on the table. But I want to pick up on how she does this. So. If you'll pay a close attention to verse 25, you know, in my mind, when I read that, I, I wanted to envision her being dragged out of her house. And then as she's being drugged out, she's like, wait, 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 wait. And, you know, she runs back inside and she brings out to the angry mob, the seal, the cord and the walking stick. And she's like, the, the man, the owner of all this is the man who is the father of this child, you know. And the whole crowd gasp, and then we go into commercial break. You know, um, that's that's kind of the way I envisioned it in my head. But if you read exactly what happened in verse twenty-five, it didn't go down that way. Um, it actually says, um, going to verse twenty-five, that she sent this message to her father-in-law. So she, you know, when we read about her saying the man who owns these things made me pregnant, look close. Uh, whose seal and cord and walking stick are these? This was not a statement given to a broad audience. This was essentially a letter <clears throat> or some form of communication that was delivered directly to Judah. So she, Tamar, Tamar handles this situation with tremendous grace and skill. So remember earlier when we read that she wore a veil uh, when she was with Judah. Not only was this to protect her identity so that she would that he would sleep with her, it was also so that she wouldn't be seen as a prostitute and thus preserve her and Judah's reputation. The way in which she reaches out to Judah also shows that she has grace in her actions. She, she could have uh, shouted out to the world, kind of like I talked about, that Judah had slept with her and thus uh, because he thought that she was a prostitute and smeared the name of Judah, but she doesn't. She has respect for Judah. She actually chooses to reach out privately <clears throat> so as to retain the dignity of, of herself and of Judah. And it's in this moment, the, the next verse, that we kind of see Judah kind of gets this wake-up call in verse 26 to the fact that he had failed Tamar in his obligation to her after all these years, and he realizes how wrong he was for leaving Tamar in that state of limbo where she could never really move on with her life. And this is a very pivotal moment for Judah because the next time we see him, he's back rejoined with her family. And there's some scholars that believe that this was kind of a point of redemption. And this is a reason that the birthright from Jacob never passed from Judah, even in the moment of failure by Judah. 
you know, he realizes his error of his ways and he corrects himself. And thus God sees that and he does not let the honor of bearing the Messiah pass from the house and the tribe of Judah. So again, Judah, you know, though he makes a mistake and he does not fulfill his obligation in the manner in which he should have, he sees the error of his ways and uh, he kind of gets himself back on track. So I think God sees that forgiveness and uh, he allows Judah to continue to bear the Messiah. So in the final moments of this chapter, we see that Tamar is giving birth to twins. And it's so similar to the birth story of Jacob and Esau. But in this case, the one that was originally to be first was actually supplanted successfully, unlike how Esau still arrived first, even though Jacob wrestled with him in the womb and grasped his heel upon birth. So we see the firstborn son, <clears throat> the one that came out, you know, the, the, the one that didn't stick their hand out of the womb first. Um, his name Perez, and the second son whose hand initially emerged was named Zerah. And it is through Perez that the Messiah will be born from the tribe of Judah. We can see this <clears throat> looking forward in Matthew chapter 1, verse 3, in Matthew's genealogical breakdown of Jesus' earthly father, Joseph. But it's very critical to note here that not only was Perez mentioned, but his mother Tamar was actually spelled out specifically in that genealogy as well. In fact, Tamar is <clears throat> only one of three women specifically mentioned in Matthew's genealogy. Tamar is joined by Rahab and Ruth in this regard. So, why is this a big deal? Who cares? Well, remember the customs of the time. Only the male lineage was really important in this culture. So, if you saw a female listed in a genealogy report like the one in Matthew's writings, it meant that that person was of very great importance to have kind of uh, been able to have made their way into the report. And this is God's way of saying that Tamar's actions are all justified and that because of her desire to see the law fulfilled and to have her life restored, that Judah was able to bear the Messiah as God intended and it could have very well put Judah back on the straight and narrow that he had veered from. And one last thing to remember is that Tamar is a Canaanite woman and it just adds on to the honor that it is that Tamar was called out in this genealogy. Not only is she a woman, but she's also a Canaanite, and she is forever etched in history for connection to a perfect, spotless lamb, Jesus Christ. So I, I find that truly amazing to think that, you know, um, the the bloodline or the, the genealogy leading up to our Lord and Savior, you know, it's got it's got people in there that, you know, would you would not consider to probably be perfect. You know, it's not people that... Um, you would think should have been in there, but that's part of the makeup of who Jesus came to be. You know, he, he is a savior of all people. You know, he was not of the purest Jewish bloodline. You know, he was, he is a savior to all humanity and his genealogy reflects this. So with all of that being said, um, that is all I have for the entire chapter of Genesis 38. So now I'm going to turn it back over to my friend, brother Ethan. All right. Well, hey, great job, AJ. Really great notes there. I uh, I enjoyed your thoughts there on uh, Onan and uh, and tying that into us and how we can view church. I thought that was really insightful, and uh, I th I thought it's it's kind of funny. You know, you have two people read a chapter, and there's uh, you know multiple different impressions that it can leave, and. Uh, your your impression when you read it, it was a little bit different from mine. So mm -hmm. uh, you kind of said like, okay, Tamar purposefully kind of like dressed like a prostitute. 
And mm-hmm. uh, actually, that was not the impression that I got. It, mm-hmm. it was, hey, Judas coming, and she disguises herself to mm-hmm. go see him. And uh, so I read this chapter in a, in a slightly different translation than I read in the NLT. The other translation, it seemed to kind of indicate like when she goes out there and sees Judah, she sees that Shula is all full grown, right? And hasn't been given. Mm-hmm. It's almost like, uh, or not Shula, Sheila is, is, is there with Judah. And so that's kind of the impression that I got from a different translation. I'm not saying that's mm-hmm. the right one, but, um, but right. that was just kind of my first thoughts when I was reading it. And then mm-hmm. you, you, uh, you also mentioned like Tamar kind of discreetly af- after when, when she's being brought out to be burned alive, she discreetly uh, tells Judah, Hey, you know this, you're the father. Uh, I actually didn't get that impression at all. I thought she, it seemed uh, uh, public to me. So mm-hmm. even though she's sending like a direct message to Judah, um, mm-hmm. you know, obviously she's being drug out of her home. So, you know, right. it's just like one of those things where you two different people and it's just a slightly different impression. Um, mm-hmm. it doesn't mean either right or wrong. It's just right. kind of funny how, how that happens. So, mm-hmm. all right, well, I'm going to go ahead and, uh, dive into my notes. I'm going to try to not, uh, cover what you've covered. Cause you, you really did a, a good job covering this chapter, comprehensively. So just some of the, the thoughts, uh, and the vibes that I'm getting from this chapter. So I think a lot of this chapter is about God setting the precedent of his eternal care for the widow. And I know, uh, in earlier in Genesis, we talked about Hagar and how Abraham sends her away and God does something special to take care of Hagar. He sends an angel. Actually, the text kind of indicates that this angel is God himself and he, he takes care, care of Hagar and, and blesses her and her son Ishmael, even though she's husbandless, she's almost like a widow and God's doing that in this story as well, taking care of the widow and showing uh, how evil it is when the widow is not taken care of. And so um, I want to point out that uh, after Onan's death, um, Judah lives uh, some time afterward and it says it says in the text says after a long time judah's wife dies and so that's the time period between tamar losing her second husband onan and this whole incident with judah happening it's a quote long time and so hagar or not hagar tamar has had to endure uh being a widow away from the family that she should be uh, be protected and taken care uh, or the family that should be taking care of her. She's separated from them and, and um, kind of out of that protection. And so that's, that's kind of the evil that's going on here. It's not just this uh, raising up an heir for your brother, but also that the widow is not being taken care of. We also talked about in earlier chapters, how Sarah Uh, She felt all this shame for being childless. You got to think that Tamar also felt that shame. And this 
custom and this culture, being childless was a uh, it was considered a curse. And so Tamar has to live out from the under the care of a family, and she has to live with this shame of being childless for a quote long time. And so obviously God isn't happy with that. He's not happy with how Judah's family has treated her. That's why Onan died. That's why Judah is is shamed here. And that's why at the very end of the chapter, Tamar is declared more righteous than Judah. I'm not saying that what she did was right, right? Uh, Sleeping with her father-in-law's incest. But the fact that um, even though that the, the means of the destination wasn't good getting to that destination of her being cared for and for her being honored for her first husband to be honored. That's, um, that's being righteous there. That's Tamar being more righteous than, than Judah. So I think that's the flavor of this chapter is, is once again, God taking care of the widow. I do want to point out a few just kind of items of interest before really going a little further into the significance of the story. So um, Judah's friend, Hira, he's an Adulamite. So just fun fact, Adulam happens to be a place where there are a lot of caves. And there's a, a famous guy named King David who happened to hide in these caves when he was uh, hiding from King Saul in the book of First Samuel. So fun fact there. Uh, you mentioned that there was some parallels between Esau and Judah for the birth of uh, Perez and, um, oh, the other uh, the other son. <laughs> I can't remember. Zerah. Zerah. And I think there's actually a lot of parallels between Esau and Judah throughout this whole chapter. So um, Esau and Judah. So um, Judah and Esau, they both separate from their families and they marry Canaanites. So I think that's a, uh, uh, interesting parallel. Uh, Judah does have the birthright in this story, right? We know that Reuben has forfeited, uh, forfeited that he slept with, uh, his father's concubine, Simeon and Levi. They murdered a bunch of people. Uh, their father wasn't happy with that. So now the birthright is with Judah. And so we find out that he keeps this birthright, uh, and eventually becomes the ancestor of the Messiah of, of Jesus, just like you said. Um, and, and contrasting, Esau had the birthright in his story, but he forfeited that birthright. So a little bit of a, of a contrast there. So uh, Tamar, like you said, she has twins. It's pretty similar to Jacob and Esau. And so uh, you mentioned one brother sticks his hand out first. The midwife ties a scarlet cord around his wrist. Uh, really interesting that it's scarlet because uh, the red baby, right? The one that's red, that has the red uh, band, um, he happens to be the second born. But if you remember in the story of Jacob and Esau, Esau, his name means red and he was the firstborn. So it's a kind of a, a contrasting uh, scenario here, right? So Esau's the red one. He's the firstborn in this particular one. Zerah's the one with the red tied around his wrist and he's the, the secondborn. So um, just a interesting parallel. So what is the point of this strange story? I mean, like you've said, it's very foreign to us. And so we have to ask the question, have to, 
Why is this story even in the Bible? Uh, Another question that people may have is, is this story condoning incest? Because, hey, Judah sleeps with Tamar, and Tamar is honored at the end of the day, and this appears to be a good thing. The answer is, this story is not condoning incest. Rather, it's showing God's concern for family and his desire that family should be our number one priority. Tamar is forsaken by Judah and his entire family and becomes a childless widow. But God was not pleased with this. And so even though that Tamar used a method that we wouldn't consider moral, and I don't think anybody would consider moral, to bring herself under the care of Judah and his family, even though that that method wasn't approved by God, Tamar was the victim in this story. And she, at the end of it, was declared more righteous than Judah. So God has always had a special care for widows and orphans. And so many of the prophetic books, they basically say at the very beginning, hey, you're not caring for the widows and the orphans. And because of that, uh, we're just about, God's going to wipe out Israel. I mean, and that seems to be like the big reason. And so there's definitely a a precedent for God's um, care and his willingness to destroy people uh, if you don't care for the widows and orphan. And I think this this story with Onan and him being killed is a great example of that. And so I think this story is, is in the Bible, number one, to show God's value for the family and how important it is to care for those who are, who are victims, those who are widows and, and those who are orphans. So I think, though, the story is part of a bigger narrative and significance as well. And so we have to look at this in the overall narrative of Genesis. And so I think you mentioned this when you were introducing, bringing us into the episode. But it's really strange about the story is that it's right in the middle of the story of Joseph. And it just seems out of place, right? Joseph gets sold into slavery. The next chapter Genesis chapter 39, we're going to go right into that. The story continues right there with Joseph being sold as a slave. And so between chapters 30, uh, 37 and 39 is this just this chapter that feels out of place. And so um, I, I wondered, okay, why is this here? And so I saw something online that was insightful, and I wish I could find the site again so I could, I could give it credit. But I think it sheds some light on, on why this story is here in the narrative. So Judah has the birthright at this moment. And we know Reuben, Simeon, Levi, they forfeited that. And so Judah's the, the, the next in line to receive that birthright. But in the previous chapter, we're introduced to a real threat to Judah's birthright. And that threat is a guy named Joseph. And so even though Joseph was the second youngest son of Jacob, remember, he's got 12 sons. We, as we found out last chapter, was by far the favorite to Jacob. And so there's this possibility. You've got to think in the minds of the other 11 brothers that, you know what? It's possible that Jacob may give the birthright to Joseph. Break culture 
break all the tendencies, break all the rules, because Joseph is just that much of a favorite. And so out of jealousy and for Judah, out of securing his position of holding that birthright, the brothers, they get rid of Joseph. And so this seems to secure Judah's position as next in line to receive that birthright. But this story showcases how close Judah is to forfeiting that birthright. He separates himself from his family. He marries a Canaanite. I mean, these aren't good decisions, especially when you look at them in light of what happened to Esau. He did the exact same things and look out, look how it turned out uh, for him. And so then Judah, he sins against his own family, just uh, like, uh, just like Reuben did. And so how does Judah manage to keep his birthright? I think the answer is, like you said, it's, it's repentance. Reuben isn't recorded to have made things right with his father, Jacob, after sleeping with his concubine. Simeon and Levi, uh, we read that they're really quite defensive when Jacob confronts them about their heinous sin. Uh, but Judah, he readily admits his failure to Tamar, and it's seemingly public. And Tamar is vindicated after those many years of shame. And so I believe Judah's attitude allowed him to maintain his position to keep that birthright. But the threat is still there. The threat is still Joseph. And, uh, and Joseph is still around. They haven't killed him. He's, they just sold him into slavery. And so Judah is going to have to wonder if his father Israel will give, eventually give that birthright blessing to Joseph instead of him for the rest of his life. So this rivalry, right, between Judah and Joseph that's shown here, shown in Genesis chapter 37 and in this particular chapter, that this rivalry is going to continue for a long, long time, far past their own lifetimes. So Joseph's sons are Manasseh and Ephraim. They're the fathers of two of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so uh, the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Ephraim, so that's Joseph's son, will become the two dominant tribes in the land of Israel. So Judah will become the dominant tribe in the south, and Ephraim will become the dominant tribe in the north. And this rivalry between these descendants of Judah and Joseph will become so bitter after the death of King Solomon that the king of Is- the kingdom of Israel is going to split into two, into a northern kingdom led by Ephraim and a southern kingdom led by Judah. And so their bitterness toward one another spills even into the time of Jesus. So this whole birthright struggle between between Joseph and Judah, it spills into Jesus because uh, the time of Jesus. So the descendants of Judah, by the time you get around to Jesus, are called Jews, while the descendants of Ephraim are called Samaritans. And if you're familiar at all with New, the New Testament, these two groups hate each other. And I think it's all the more amazing when you consider how, uh, how long and how bitter this rivalry is. I just think how amazing it is that the, the one person who's able to reconcile these two groups is none other than Jesus, our Messiah. And Jesus, a Jew, shows special care in John chapter 4 to visit the people of Samaria. He says, I've got to go through the land of Samaria. 
See, Jews, they would bypass Samaria every single time if they were going from Jerusalem to Galilee. But Jesus said, nope, we're going to go straight through Samaria because I have to go visit some people there. And so I just think that's all the more amazing when you consider um, that story in light of all this history. So this whole story, to to end my comments, really just showcases God's grace. Tamar is given grace by God, though she sleeps with her father-in-law. Judah is given grace because though he is in the wrong, and Joseph is more deserving, uh, just character-wise, to receive the birthright, Judah is still allowed at the very end of the day to keep his birthright because he's repentant. And then God gives grace upon grace to Judah's and Joseph's descendants and reconciles them through his gifts of Messiah, Jesus, God incarnate. And I just think that's amazing. Weaving those threads of the tapestry together and getting all of that culminated in the man named Jesus. So that's all I got. All right. Well, fantastic job as always, brother Ethan. Thank you for sharing your thoughts on this. Um, so, so many good points and, you know, kind of going back to what you, what you first started out as, you know, with our, Two different viewpoints as we kind of went through and read through the chapter. Um, Like you said, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Um, I I think that a lot of times the Bible is intentionally written in a manner in which it can be written. It can be interpreted in different lights, uh, just depending on, you know, the perspective of the reader. And uh, that kind of gives it that much more that we can we can dig out of it depending on our circumstances. So um, enjoyed hearing your in your thoughts and your take and kind of your angle of perspective on it. Um, and I think you did a fantastic job as well, really kind of breaking down exactly what it is this as at the core of this chapter, as well as the fact of, you know, the, like you said, the story showcases God's grace and uh, how it just kind of overflows. And you clarified something that after I had finished my portion and had turned it over to you, um, I realized I made somewhat of a, a miss, a misspeak, misspoke. So, uh, let me go ahead and, and clarify that now. I think right at the end of mine, I made a comment that said, um, that Tamar, all of Tamar's actions were, uh, justified and fully approved. And that's not necessarily, uh, true. Like I said, you know, we kind of talked about, Ethan kind of talked about there about the incest. Um, you know, that's, that incest is naturally not approved, but we do see in this case that, you know, it's still, Tamar was still uh, more justified, I guess, in that in that moment. Um, she she has more righteousness, like we said, th- than uh, Judah did at that moment. So, um, but I just wanted to clarify that really quickly before we before we went off the air on this episode. But um, all together, I think we had a, a great a great show this time around. I think we we learned a lot of great things, uh, got some really great things out of this chapter. So we hope you did too um, as a listener. So thank you so much for joining us this week on the Everywhere Podcast. And we're going to go ahead and bring this episode to a close. So we hope you guys have a great rest of your week and we will see you again next time. See you guys. All right. See y'all.